This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Thank you very much for that warm up. <laughs> um, yes, so I'm going to give a talk on dana. Um, which I've entitled The Emotional Life of the Sangha. Um, and, uh, well, as Saraha said, dana means generosity. Um, but it's quite easy then to just think, oh, we know all about that, we know what generosity is, and uh, she's going to ask us for money. And <laughs> I'm not, actually. <laughs> um, you know, and as sort of, we can kind of put that to one side because we know all about it. But, um, and I sometimes think like that. It's such a familiar topic, generosity, dana. Uh, but I, I found when I started thinking more deeply that there's, there's just so much about generosity or dana or giving um, as a practice that's, that's fundamental to um, Buddhism and to our understanding of the spiritual path. Um, yeah, and just to our lives as human beings. Uh, it was really quite inspiring, I think, to, uh, to think about it. So I'm going to just share my uh, connected ramblings or maybe unconnected ramblings about the topic of dana um, for probably about 30 or 40 minutes. Um, and then we'll have a tea break and then we'll come back and meditate. So, um, okay, dana. Um, it's the um, Pali word meaning um, giving. So, um, yeah, and there's a lot of emphasis on dana in Buddhism. It, it crops up everywhere in all the texts and in lots of lists. So I started thinking, why should we give anything to anyone ever? <laughs> why, why dana? Why practice? Why do we give? And, uh, and what, what happens when we give? What's that about? And is it actually, is it always appropriate? Um, and maybe there are some reasons not to give sometimes. So, uh, you know, these uh, thoughts sort of came up. Um, yeah, so the first thing I'll say about dana um, in Buddhism is that it's a practice. Um, it's something that we do, like meditation, like puja, like dharma study, like going on retreat, or something that, you know, ideally we would do. <laughs> Um, and we do. I'm sure we. I'm sure we all practice dana in some way. Um, but it's, pra it's practice, which means that it's a deliberate, conscious choice of a way of behaving or a way of organising our energy um, for a given purpose. Um, so it's a training. It's a practice. It's a training. Um, and obviously, ethics um, are a training ground. And dana is um, the second of of the five precepts, or the positive counterpart to the second of the five precepts. So um, the five ethical training principles that we take on are um, non-harm, generosity, um, uh, avoiding sexual misconduct, truthful speech, and um, avoiding intoxicants or practicing mindfulness. I think I've mixed up the positive and the negatives there. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, because they, all those five precepts have, you know, as, men, as you 
probably know, they have a negative aspect, something we avoid doing, and a positive aspect, something that we positively try to do more of. And in the case of the second precept, it's, um, it's dana, um, as, a, as an antidote to um, taking the not given, or to, to, to grasping, or to greed, perhaps, if you like. Um, so, this sadhana is something that we positively undertake to do when we undertake those five precepts. Um, so that's quite a thought. We're not just, um, it isn't just that we're undertaking not to steal. We're undertaking to try to be more generous than we currently are. So it's, you know, there's an edge that we all have to work with. And if we're undertaking this precept, we're trying to go a little beyond the, um, the level that we have attained thus far. It's a training. So dana, the second of the, the five precepts, is also the first of the six paramitas practiced by the bodhisattva. Um, now, this may sound like jargon to a few people here. Um, perhaps not. But uh, So the, the bodhisattva, it, I'll just explain briefly, it's sort of the ideal Buddhist, the, um, the Buddhist in training, the... Um, so we have sort of fully developed bodhisattvas like these ones on the walls, um, like Avalokiteshvara, in particular, archetypal bodhisattva of compassion. Um, and there's a whole range, it goes all the way down to trainee novice bodhisattvas, which perhaps, you know, we are. <laughs> We're sort of on our way to becoming um, one of these more developed, very glorious, helpful beings at some distant point in the future maybe, if we carry on. <laughs> um, so, as trainee bodhisattvas, we take on the six perfections, perfect um, ways of conduct of, um, of, of a bodhisattva, somebody in training to be a Buddha, to become an enlightened being. <clears throat> and these six ways of conduct, um, just for completion, are dana, or giving, sila, or ethics, and then, of course, there's a loop here because ethics is usually covered in those five precepts and dana is in there. But anyway, firstly, dana. Secondly, sila. Thirdly, virya, or energy, or um, positive effort. Um, fourthly, kshanti, or patience, which is very, very beautiful quality for a bodhisattva to develop or for any human being to develop. The quality of patience. Quite an active quality, actually. Um, you know, a quality of being able to be with what is without railing against it. Um, fifthly, samadhi, which is meditation, meditative states. And lastly, pranya, or wisdom, which in a sense underlies the previous five. All, all these practices need to be undertaken in a spirit of pranya, um, in a spirit of um, knowing how they fit in with the flow of how things really are. So these are the perfections that are practiced by bodhisattvas, um, who, those who are in training to become Buddhas, not just for their own sakes, but for the benefit of all. That's the definition of a bodhisattva. And I thought it was interesting to find dana at the beginning of this list of the perfections. Um, why? Why would it be at the beginning? Does it mean that it's just a preliminary, a sort of forerunner to, you know, to the more advanced real practices later on? 
Um, sometimes people, you know, you, you could be forgiven for thinking, oh, because these lists often start with dana, well, maybe dana is the beginner practice, um, and then for those of us who, who are further along the path, we don't have to bother about it because we've, you know, gone to the next one. Um, obviously, it's not like that. <laughs> uh, it's not beginnerish at all. Um, perhaps it's the most advanced. <laughs> it's, it'd be interesting to argue it at some point to see well, what, what makes for an advanced practice and what makes for a beginner's practice. Um, yeah, why, why is dana there even before sila, sila being morality? Um, I think to understand this, we have to go back to the essence of Buddhism itself, um, to the wisdom of the enlightened mind and to the way that a Buddha would look at reality um, and to insight and the goal of the spiritual life itself, which I suppose you could say is enlightenment. But what's that when we talk about enlightenment? Why are we trading a spiritual path? And, uh, and what is it that we're trying to attain or achieve? So if we are aiming for enlightenment, what we're trying to do is develop um, the fullness of our human potential, um, our potential as human beings, which means, um, according to Buddhism, it's the full flowering of wisdom and compassion. So we have that germinally in ourselves as human beings, but if we were to progress to the state of enlightenment, that wisdom and compassion that we have would, would be fully flowered. That's, so that's where we're headed. We're on a long journey. Um, it's more than one lifetime's work, I believe. That's perhaps another point for discussion. Um, and we're making use of teachings on this journey that have been offered to us from the past, people who have trod this path before us. So they've... Um, given us the benefit of their experience in the form of teachings and instructions and guidance. And that's what we use to, um, well, to orient ourselves on this path, on this long, long journey towards enlightenment. We are, we're using the Dharma. That's what it amounts to. And so along the way, um, one of the features, one of the principal events or... Um, results, I suppose, of practicing is that our ego becomes attenuated. Our individual separate ego gets loosened up and becomes attenuated. And that's what we want. We, um, we all have a sense of ourselves. We all have a sense of an ego which we need to protect, which we need to cherish, which is fine to cherish and protect as we do in the, in the first stage of the metta bhavana. Um, but we need to not be limited by that ego. And spiritual practice consists in attenuating the boundaries of that ego. So we become, as time goes on, hopefully, a bit less self-referential, a bit less the center of everything. Um, and we see things more in the terms of, gen of the general good, of everybody's good, or the good of all living beings, the good of the planet. Um, less in terms of our individual needs and um, desires and preferences. So this um, loosening up, this attenuation of our ego, is one of the fruits of spiritual practice. 
Um, so as a result of practice, that starts to happen, and we start to benefit from not feeling so constrained by our ego. And it's also a method for um, deepening our, our practice and our understanding. So you get this, get this quite often in um, Buddhism, that something is both a fruit and a practice in itself. Um, it's like a positive loop. Like, for instance, um, meditation posture. Um, if, if you have a good meditation posture and you can sit well, then that helps you to concentrate. And then the concentration gets reflected in your posture again. You've, you know, you've probably had the experience of getting quite concentrated in meditation, really being absorbed in the practice, and your body just subtly straightens up. Your spine subtly elongates as your consciousness gets more sort of integrated and settled and um, expanded at the same time. So, yeah, um, so the meditation posture is both a fruit and, and a practice because you sit in a certain way to, you know, to stimulate that practice to start with. And um, likewise with other spiritual practices, you know, if you speak truthfully, then communication with others becomes more authentic and then it's easier and more natural to be fully truthful. So that's another positive loop. And metta, you know, if you develop metta towards others, people will pick up on that. People pick up on your goodwill and um, your, your, your liking for them, your, you know, goodwill and kindness towards them. They act more kindly towards you. Then it's easier to develop metta towards them. So that's a kind of positive spiral. Which, um, which is in line with um, the dharmic uh, order of conditionality, if you like, uh, the sort of the spiral path, which is the path we're trying to be on when we practice the dharma, when we practice Buddhism. So dharma, as a practice, works in the same way. If you give something, um, whether it's time or money or comfort to somebody or, um, or a kind of service, you do something for somebody, it opens up a channel um, and there's a flow of subtle energy between you and the recipient. Um, and that channel is opened and you feel more comfortable then with giving and more inclined to give again and more, more able to take pleasure in that giving. Um, in 2008, there was a National Order Weekend for the Women Order Members, and um, Dianundi gave a talk on that weekend. Um, and she talked, among other things, about practices that unite the order. Um, she was calling it, they called her Sangrahavastus. And she said in that talk, the main benefit I feel from practicing dana is happiness and an expansive opening of the heart. I feel more connected with people, more flowing and in relationship. Everything seems to flow more and be less stuck. So um, as an incidental benefit of, of practicing dana, generosity, um, it often involves letting go of something. You know, it might be letting go of some money, it might be letting go of an idea of my time versus time for something else, somebody else. Um, so whatever it is that we're kind of loosening our grip on, um, it's, we're giving up something, we're giving something away. So we're, under, well, we're, we're sort of um, attenuating the tendency to grasp 
and um, cling to things. Um, and we're moving towards a more flowing and open-handed relationship with the world. And so going back to the, the attenuation of the ego, um, if your main interest and concern were the well-being of all living beings, then it would be completely natural just to want to give them whatever they need, whatever they need or want. If that is really the thing motivating your life, you know, to, to uh, work for the benefit of others, you just would want to give. <laughs> so I think we're all sometimes in touch with that, you know, to greater or lesser degrees. Um, so the, the Buddha's natural attitude towards living beings and the Bodhisattva's natural attitude towards living sentient beings is a spontaneous wish to give to them and to just be of service. And uh, this is the whole foundation of the spiritual path. And that's why dana is what comes first. Um, an orientation to, towards meeting the, the emotional or spiritual or material or whatever needs of others as well as our own. So this wish is beautifully expressed in um, the Sutra. And one of them is the Sutra of Golden Light. Uh, I'll just read a little quote from there. Everywhere in the spheres of all beings, may all the woes in the world be extinguished. May those beings whose senses are defective, whose limbs are deficient, all now become complete in senses. May those lying in the ten directions who are diseased, powerless, whose body is injured and who are without protection, all be delivered quickly from their disease. And may they obtain health, strength and senses. May they have beautiful, gracious, auspicious forms and continually have a heap of numerous blessings. As soon as they think of them, may there be for them food and drink as they desire, great abundance and merits, lutes, drums and pleasant-sounding cymbals, springs, pools, ponds and tanks. <laughs> as soon as they think of them, may there be for them lotus ponds of blue and golden lotuses, food and drink, likewise clothing, wealth, gold, ornament of gems and pearls, gold, beryl and various jewels. May there be no sounds of woe anywhere in the world. May there be not one being of opposing mien, and may they all be of noble aspect, creating light for one another. And you know, it just goes on like this, for pages, actually, may they rain down three times from the trees, perfume, garlands, ungent clothing, and so on. Um, so there's this, this fervent wish um, just for, for beings to have what they need to, to relieve their suffering or just to make them, them happy. And um, this emotional state flows directly from the Bodhisattva's desire to gain enlightenment not just for his or her own sake, but for the benefit of all sentient beings. There's another very beautiful part in this chapter that says, And may I be for those who are without deliverance, without rescue, without refuge, the deliverer, the refuge, the excellent protector. So the Bodhisattva here is, is wanting to put themselves in the position where you know, they are going to really be able to help. 
<laughs> to be the deliverer, the, um, the excellent protector. It's sort of um, like a knight in shining armour, <laughs> kind of Indian equivalent. Very beautiful. So um, ultimately, um, this desire is in line with the enlightened wisdom of a Buddha. Uh, the wisdom that sees all things as being interconnected so that the happiness of one being is, is connected to and it's reflected in the happiness and the health and the well-being of, of all beings. Um, yeah, it would be impossible, say, for an enlightened being to enjoy something if it comes at the expense of another. Um, it would just be a contradiction in terms. You know, for instance, uh, a bodhisattva or a trainee bodhisattva couldn't take pleasure in, say, hunting or any kind of blood sport or an activity that's based on inflicting suffering on a living being, like bullfighting or shooting birds out of the sky or actually even, in my opinion, fishing <laughs> kind of you know, comes under that as well. So all these practices are just the opposite of treating beings with loving-kindness. The Bodhisattva, on the, on the contrary, wants to protect beings, human and non-human, from all forms of suffering, wants to nurture them and allow them space to grow, and ultimately to grow towards enlightenment. So this is the emotional orientation which underpins basically all spiritual development, um, i.e. the wish to help others. And giving is the most immediate obvious expression of that wish, giving, just being open-handed, being there to support. So dana is absolutely fundamental. In fact, you could even say without some desire to help others, there can be no, we, we wouldn't get very far in the spiritual life. So the main points so far are that dana is a practice as in a training. Um, it's the basis of all ethics. And so in a sense, it's uh, the basis of the whole path because enlightenment is about attenuating the ego and dana loosens it up. And um, thirdly, practicing dana leads to increasing connection with others, which leads to a stronger desire to be of benefit to them and then an even stronger wish to give to them. So it has a positive loop. Um, effect. And fourthly, that kindness is what flavors a Buddhist's behavior towards other living beings, ideally, kindness and metta. And um, kindness and generosity just go naturally together, like tea and biscuits, <laughs> like salt and pepper. <laughs> so kindness and generosity. And Lastly, the Bodhisattva's wish is to help beings and dana is the immediate concrete expression of that wish. So those, are some of my, those were some of my thoughts about the importance of dana in Buddhism and why, why one would do it. Um, so I'll just talk a little bit now about uh, more about the nuts and bolts of giving, the what, say, and the how. Um, so this will be a bit briefer. Um, Sankarachita gave a talk on dana in the Bodhisattva Ideal series, which many people here have studied uh, because it's part of the Mitra study course. 
And uh, in that talk, he identified five things that could be given, five useful things. Um, so the first is material things. This is really obvious. It's probably what we all think of first in terms of generosity. We have some material possessions. We have some money. We could give it. We could give some of it at least. So that's quite easy to do. Well, <laughs> in theory. <laughs> um, secondly, there's time, energy, and thought, which um, oh, well, we all have a quantum of that. So sharing that with others is an act of, of dana, of generosity. Thirdly, there's knowledge, sharing our knowledge. Um, where would we be without uh, our teachers having shared knowledge with us, both secular and non-secular? Fourthly, there's life and limb. And fifthly, there's the gift of the Dharma. So, of course, he goes into all of these in more detail in, in that lecture, which is a very good lecture. You can find it on um, free Buddhist audio. So, the, yeah, the gift of the Dharma, I think that's interesting. It's sort of last in the list. Sometimes it's said it's the highest gift. Um, and I believe that. I believe that it is the highest gift because ultimately it's the gift of the Dharma that in the long run is going to alleviate suffering the most in that it will help beings to uh, move towards enlightenment and to become more harmless and more kind and more effective in the world as a force for good. Um, so it's, it's the highest gift, you know, you could, there's lots of reasons why it's the gift of the Dharma is, is um, of utmost importance. So this centre um, exists in order to give the gift of the Dharma. And I personally feel very honoured to be a part of this centre. I feel somehow I've stumbled into this life, this Buddhist life, and somehow I've ended up connected with this centre, you know, profoundly connected with the centre. And um, in some ways I don't know how it happened, but I just feel very honoured that, uh, that I'm here and that, you know, I'm, I can do my part in serving this vision. So I'm in a position where I can give time and energy and thought to the centre. So in this way I'm, I'm part of helping to make the Dharma available in the world. But um, it's interesting because, well, I'll come back to giving and receiving later because I don't actually feel as though, I feel more like I'm receiving than giving when I'm uh, involved in the centre. But uh, why should I, or why should anyone, want to do that? Why should they want to be part of a centre like this and give their time and energy to it? Two reasons sprang to mind for me. The first was out of gratitude, which is a really interesting emotion in itself, gratitude, a very beautiful emotion. It's called in, in Pali, katanyata. And there's actually a whole chapter devoted to gratitude in um, this book, What is the Sangha? Um, which I'd certainly recommend. And, uh, yeah, so it's discussed in here, but it's, there are, you know, reason, beings, objects of our gratitude, such as parents and teachers and so on, um, it's, it's gone into over a number of pages. And I thought an interesting um, part of this chapter was going into um, reasons for ingratitude. 
Um, and basically, Bounty in this chapter identified four reasons not to be grateful, or not, not to be grateful, four reasons why people sometimes aren't grateful. Um, firstly, the failure to recognize a benefit as a benefit. So you've received a benefit, but you don't realize that it's a benefit. <laughs> so it's a failure to recognize that. Secondly, um, taking benefits for granted. I think um, it's, it's very easy to do this. It's very easy to, for us to, to take for granted things like, you know, the classic one is the NHS in this country, because it's always been there in our lifetime. Uh, you know, we take it for granted, but um, maybe we don't. Perhaps I'm just talking about myself, but well, actually I don't think I take it for granted. I feel very privileged, again, to um, live in a country that has the compassion, that, you know, where the compassion has been manif manifested to that extent, where healthcare is provided free at the point of delivery. I just think that's so advanced and so civilised. Um, so, yeah. Uh, taking benefits for granted. So that would be another reason for ingratitude. Egoism, you know, uh, why should I be grateful to anybody? <laughs> another reason. And forgetfulness, just plain forgetfulness. We've received a benefit, but it's not in the forefront of our minds, so we've forgotten. So, um, yeah, I think if one, you know, can counteract those um, negative tendencies, gratitude flows Gratitude is sort of not far from the surface in most people's lives, I think. It doesn't take much to, to start to remember benefits received and um, reasons to be grateful for that. It's definitely something that's worth doing on a regular basis. So the second reason, why would one want to give one's energy and time or generosity in whatever way to a centre like this, is... Um, because it not only benefits others, but, well, in my case, I'm saying it benefits me. Um, sometimes it's quite hard to tell the difference between the two, between benefiting others and benefiting myself, um, especially when it comes to being involved in something that's so obviously wholesome and so obviously of benefit to many people in, in you know, very um, immediately apparent ways. People often, I'm often in beginner's classes where people, um, at their very first class, they've just sat and done the metabhavana or the mindfulness of breathing for the first time, and they're sometimes overwhelmed with happiness <laughs> after that experience, even if the meditation itself might not have been crash hot or whatever. But um, they, they can be so grateful at that point um, just to have had that immensely calming and refreshing experience of being able to give some attention to their inner life and to find themselves in conditions that are supportive to that, to find themselves in a supportive structure. Um, so I, I really enjoy beginners classes because of that, you know, that initial contact with the Dharma and how people really um, respond to it. Um, so when that happens, I feel like I'm receiving something. I really feel as though I'm being lifted when, you know, when somebody expresses that sort of experience. So it's an absolute delight. Um, a little short aphorism in Pieces and Is a Fire about that. Giving is the natural 
unforced exchange of one's energy with that of others. In this sense, real giving is receiving. So giving and receiving, obviously two sides of the one coin. It's um, sometimes the one is the other. An ultimate dana goes beyond giver and receiver. That's probably why they're so, so closely connected. There's just a flow of generosity. Um, sometimes you get a sense of that when um, you want to contribute with any sense that you're giving anything. So you're just being yourself. Um, and you see that in, in different things happening in the world. I've, I heard recently of um, uh, the response of Japanese people to earthquakes. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine who um, had been in Japan and um, not at the time of the recent earthquake, but she'd been there a number of times years ago. And uh, she said it's quite common in Japan, of course they have a lot of earthquakes, and sometimes they're quite strong earthquakes and things fall off, fall off shelves and things fall down. So it's quite common after an earthquake for video cameras to pick up people in supermarkets lifting the products up off the floor and putting them back on the shelf. They're not looting. <laughs> They're just, there's been an earthquake, things have been rattled about and fallen down, so it's time to put it back up again. And um, I was very impressed by that, that, because there's obviously such a sense of just an impersonal wish to just be a benefit, um, to, to put things right. So on some fundamental level, that's, that's our humanity, you know, w working at its best, I think. Yeah, and closer to home, sometimes you get a sense of that when, um, well, there's a lot of people about and some washing up to do and someone just starts to wash up. It's, in fact, it happens all the time here that uh, people just generously go into the kitchen and wash up, dry up, do various things. Um, or, you, you know, you replace the loo roll because it's empty or um, the door, doorbell rings, so you answer it. Um, so just being there and being willing to sort of respond to quite ordinary needs about, around about. Um, that is generosity, and it might not seem like very much, but it's, it's actually incredibly important because the, the sense of a sangha operating in a healthy way is, is reliant on, on that sort of attitude, that attitude of being generous, taking responsibility, um, and just being available. Yeah, in fact, I think... Um, yeah, just making yourself available to do whatever's needed, it's quite a strong practice in its, in its own right. And Banti once said something like, I'm paraphrasing, the most useful person around a centre is simply an ordinary human being who is willing to help. And those, you know, that, those are, <laughs> that is definitely what all centres need. Basically all organisations need ordinary human people, <laughs> human beings, I mean, um, who are willing to help. I mean, skills may be useful. Skills can be useful, but even more useful is that willingness. So, uh, not wishing to um, be too opportunistic here, but uh, I can't help, can't resist saying that we need volunteers, <laughs> and making a little plug for that. Um, Elaine, who works upstairs in the office, well, who works in the centre, has um, produced some flyers about volunteering. And there's a few of them at the front. Um, just to sort of 
make the mess get the message out make it known that we you know we're always we, we welcome any help that um, people can give us with various tasks like office work gardening cleaning maintenance cooking all sorts of things um, yeah so we you know we, we rely on volunteers to actually help keep the center running there's more work actually than, the, than a small team can manage on its own so we already have good support from volunteers but more is always needed. Um, yeah, and especially, well, either regular or one-off. Um, there are regular times in the week that are very useful for us. There's, there's two times in particular. One is um, Tuesday afternoons, um, particularly between four and six, because um, we've recently decided in the centre team we're going to be going to have a sort of work period after our team meeting on Tuesdays, which goes from two till four o'clock. And then after that meeting, we'll just have a period of work where we load up the car for the outreach class and put on the potatoes for the Tuesday class and maybe do some cleaning and carry around some mats and things like that. So any help is, is you know, very gratefully received on a Tuesday afternoon. You can come and join in with the team's work and that would be lovely. That would be a sense of us creating something together. And um, Friday is another good day. Um, We've got a star volunteer here, Dave, who's in most Fridays <laughs> doing the garden. Um, and yeah, so on Fridays, there's actually Dharmashura organizes the gardening and um, he's, he's always happy to have more help with, with that because you've probably seen the beautiful garden. But it, it takes a lot of work keeping it like that. Yeah, but anyway, there's, those aren't the only two times in the week, but I just thought I'd highlight those two in case that sort of fits in with anybody's life, lifestyle. So yeah, just a few words about, that was the what, we've had the why and the what, just a couple of words about the how. One can give dana, um, one can practice dana with body, speech or mind and of course they're all linked. But I just want to say um, a final word about mental giving. So thoughts of loving-kindness, metta basically, these, these thoughts are the forerunner of the deeds of loving-kindness. They have to come first. Um, it's like the first verse of the Dharmapada, all experience is led by mind, created by mind. Um, so you know, in the sim in, uh, similarly with dana, it comes out of thoughts of loving-kindness, thoughts of not necessarily generosity, but just kindness, first of all, towards other living beings. So that's the connection with dana and metta. Metta itself is an act of mental generosity. And it's just as important as physical and um, verbal generosity. Um, because without metta, it is quite difficult to be truly generous and truly helpful. And finally, um, dana is a means of unifying the Sangha. In his lecture on the, on the Sangraha Vastus, the four means of unification of the Sangha, Bhante says that dana is a form of communication. We give expression to our special awareness of someone, to our positive feeling and genuine concern for them. So as, um, as a Sangraha Vastu, it has a special function to perform in the Sangha. It's the function of establishing positive contact 
with people and just helping to form that spiritual community. We're building a spiritual community not only for today, but for the future, future generations whom we haven't met and won't meet. They'll be here in the future when we're gone. Um, and we're standing on the foundations that have been laid down for us by the teachers of the past and by practitioners of the past who've worked for our benefit. So we've, we've created good conditions here, but they've, they come on the foundation of conditions that, have, that were put in place before. So that's another thing that we can be grateful for. Um, and for just being able to participate in a supra-personal flow of dana. So um, that was all I was going to say about dana being the emotional life of the Sangha. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 